Welcome to Piecemeal, a podcast hosted by the Emily Program, where we put it all together for you. Piecemeal discusses topics related to eating disorders, body image issues, and how society may contribute to distorted thinking. Please keep in mind that we may discuss difficult topics and that we ask that you use your own discretion when listening and that you speak with a therapist as needed. I'm your host, Jillian Lambert. Today we're exploring beauty and beauty standards and how we might rethink, maybe redefine these standards to make peace with our bodies and ourselves, which we are so much about here at Family Programs. I'm so excited to talk about this today. And joining us is a woman who's long been passionate about the topic of beauty, Melissa Johnson. Melissa is a marriage and family therapist and adjunct professor at Bethel University and the founder of the Impossible Beauty blog and podcast. Through her work at Impossible Beauty, Melissa is on a mission to renew and expand beauty. She believes that the American brand of beauty is way too small and brings about all kinds of shame and division. She invites women to explore a different kind of beauty alongside her. Thank you for being here, Melissa. We're so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you guys. Awesome. Well, we know that you've given this topic a lot of thought over the years, both in professional and, and personal spaces with clients in therapy, with guests on your podcast, on your blog. So let's talk first about the early experiences that informed all this work that you've done and continue to do so. So before becoming a therapist, before founding Impossible Beauty, what did beauty mean to you in your younger years? Where did those standards come from? What experiences did you have that helped to shape or reinforce your ideas of beauty? Yeah, it's so interesting to think back because I think so much of this was like subconscious. Like, I don't think I even realized this till I had my own journey with an eating disorder and found myself in, in treatment thinking about some of these streams of like what has informed this. And so actually looking back, I think it was just such a, a slow process of things like, this sounds so maybe ridiculous, but like Disney characters or like Disney princesses or um, even like cartoon characters, like the the women that I saw on TV, I mean, so from like animated version to, I mean, even thinking about like um, shows that I would watch um, in terms of like even the news or sitcoms and the women who had voices, I was realizing like now that I look back, I was learning about uh, in order to matter, in order to have a voice, you have to look a certain way. So I think early on, it was slowly ingrained that, you know, being thin, thinking about some of those cartoons, like big eyes, innocent. And I think too, with that, like thinking about beauty with those things like thinness and big features, big hair, with those things came um, kindness and goodness. So these things were paired very early on. And I grew up in a home where things like kindness and goodness were, those were very important. And somehow in my mind, in order to be that character, like I had to also be thin and perfect looking. So I do think some of the early influences were a lot, I mean, really so much in the media looking, looking back on that. I think that's so poignant, right? We think about those, that sort of, yeah, the, the, I, I always joke, maybe not so joking that I'm pretty sure all the Disney princesses are the same body and they just put in a different hairstyle and maybe a different facial structure slightly and they're all, but they're all the same Disney princess. And fortunately they've evolved slightly maybe over the years, but they probably all are the same stock. And you're right though, that not only do they convey this beauty of how they look, but that 
attitudes, the characteristics they have are so tied to, to that even just sort of subconsciously, right? They look a certain way and they're generous and kind and the animals love them and they're able to give uh, lots of time and attention to everybody else and they're selfless and all of those qualities that do get sort of implicitly connected for us. Sort of a double whammy, isn't it? The appearance and the connection of those traits. Such a good point. Yeah, yeah. no, thank you. So how did those experiences, sort of thinking about that setting, how did those experiences impact your relationship with food and your own body as you were sort of sifting through that as a younger person? Yeah, thinking about this, I think it's just really interesting how I think there were just these layers. So like early on, I had this, this concept of beauty was kind of laid, I think probably via the media. And then on top of that, I think the messages around like food and body really came into play, I think, like in later high school and college, a lot around like diet culture. These messages that in order to attain this perfection, so to speak, or this this thin ideal, you know, there were there were ways that you could do this, um, so to speak, like this was the via the route of diet culture messages. And so different messages from my, I mean, peer group and friend group around, you know, which I've come to learn are actually eating disorder messages, which were really I think there's so much that eating disorder and our culture, I mean, the, those messages are so hand in hand, like the, the less you eat, the better and blah, 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 like the more exercise, it was just the, the better essentially were these messages that got layered on top of this idea of thin equals good. And in order to be thin, you could do X, Y, and Z. Um, and the formula came from diet culture, which was at, at, kind of came through my different friend groups and, you know, which I think probably came from the larger culture as well. Yeah, it is. It's sort of as multifaceted, but they all they all have this reinforcing effect, right? With the such similar message, and if everyone's getting such a similar message, and everybody gets steeped in it, it really is quite incredible. Yeah, yeah, and I think that that was what was shocking to me too when I just started to really analyze things. Like, wait a second, I'm being told that these are disordered messages, but this is like these are our culture's messages, and so I just I think that that's been such a huge eye-opening piece for me. And there's such big, big enterprises built on top of those messages, right? There's entire systems of commerce built on, on those messages that can, in theory, or by suggestion, get people to attain something. We know that that's not always true, often not true, often quite dismissive of reality, should we say, in that process. So, so we know that, you know, we know that there's plenty of research that looks at this link between negative body image and exposure to cultural messages about beauty and appearance and ideas of, you know, idealized beauty, but also messages from, from peers, from family, from comments we make to each other about our, our bodies. And we, we also know, of course, that not everyone with an eating disorder has strong body image concerns, and there are lots of biological and other psychological factors at work. But it's pretty clear that, that exposure to those images, particularly as it intensifies as young people grow up, can be really damaging to our physical health, to our mental health, to our social well-being. What point in, in did your response to those cultural messages begin to shift? Because they, they sort of stick around for a long time, right? It's not like they magically let up at any given time. They extend well into adulthood and later adulthood. So when did it start to shift for you? Yeah, so part of my own journey, like I mentioned, I did have a, I guess, a bout of eating disorder, treat, intensive eating disorder treatment. And I mean, it was kind of, that was a long process, but I was essentially like my, my whole life had to be put on pause 
to do this. I, I was, you know, a therapist at the time and went into intensive eating disorder treatment and had to pause my career. And yeah, I felt like my life was just like on pause. And so I was forced to kind of look at these messages about like, well, what do I believe about beauty? What do I believe about myself? And as I just, I, I looked around the, the group rooms I was in and realized how I just was like, we've been so lied to about what beauty is and, and our worth. And I could see that more, I think, in other people than in myself first, like just breaking my heart, seeing that these women and men, their, their worth was wrapped up in these messages that were essentially just making people a lot of money. And so I, I, th I started to see that because I was forced to basically. And so for me, that was where the, where the shift, I think, started to occur, where I realized that these messages were not bringing life, they were bringing destruction. And slowly then I was able to turn that on myself, like in my own perspective, or my own experience and see like, okay, if I continue to go down this road, it's not probably going to be the road that I want, like the direction I want my life to go. I think that's where the shift, like that awareness, but then like realizing, okay, so I need a different direction. Like I need a new basis for what beauty is and for relating to my body and relating to food. Absolutely. I want to highlight something you've said because I think it's such a common experience. And I think it's a confusing experience to people that when you said so eloquently that you could see it in other people, you could, you could see for them that those standards were not helpful to them. And you could see for them the damage that it was doing to them. And it was hard to see that for you. It was hard to see that for yourself in the beginning. And I think that's a common experience that is part of the eating disorder illness, sort of being able to see in other people something that's not helpful. And it's sort of hard to apply that to us, at least in the beginning. But I want to just highlight that because I think it's it's a it's one of the really fierce aspects of the illness that that it's so hard to take good care of ourselves in the middle of it, and it's so important to see that and to help to to sort of come around maybe and see it from other people's perspectives or the perspective you have for other people and try to sort of turn that that supportive perspective and and love onto ourselves so that we can stand up to those same standards we're encouraging other people to stand up to. So I just wanted to highlight that. Do you remember some of those experiences thinking like, oh, I wish that she wasn't so attached to this cultural ideal of beauty and thinking, oh, but I am. Do you remember some of those experiences? I think more so with just a larger anger toward like the culture in general. Like what? Like the, these messages are really destroying these people's lives. And then I, re then I was slowly able to like, yeah, turn it back and be like, oh, shoot, it, it is doing that to mine too. <laughs> right, mine too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I don't remember like a specific. I just remember at one point in my treatment experience, it was just like progressive. Once I started noticing it, then I couldn't not see it. Yeah, it is. It's part of the beauty of, of coming together with other people struggling with the same thing. It's part of the beauty of that eating sort of treatment in a, in a group setting that you can sort of see things and then see them about yourself in a really supportive way. Sounds like it happened for you and, and is one of the things that we, we go for that we're really looking for in. in Eating disorder treatment is how do how do we support each other? So, tell us about creating impossible beauty and and how it responds to these narrow standards of beauty. This sounds like the action you took after this difficult experience. Yeah, I I have never set out to write a manuscript for a book or anything like that, but I started to just write, and what emerged from this manuscript that I wrote about was, I mean, it was actually it's a it's a memoir or like narrative of my experience, but also the shifts that occurred in the midst of the treatment environment. So during that time, I was doing intensive treatment during the day. And in the evenings, I was working on a, 
an additional master's degree in spiritual formation. And so I would be learning about these cultural narratives during the day um, and having those like blown apart and realizing that this, there's like not a lot of solid ground for that. And then in the evenings, be studying things about like shame and grace. And so it was this really amazing, intense pairing of like seeing the, the eternal versus the ephemeral or the fleeting. And so at the end of my treatment experience, um, as I was starting to wrap it up, I was able to see, and then also as I reflected on it in this manuscript I was writing, I was able to see these two paths emerging, like these paths of what I call American currency or how our like culture values people, like based on how closely they align with these beauty ideals. Um, and then I also saw this narrative of true beauty, which is what I'm calling it which is, um, I, the way I define it is the life of God at work in us and among us. And I think that emerges in so many beautiful ways. So that was the platform was impossible beauty. And a lot of people think it's like impossible beauty standards, which, which also fits. But um, to me, it actually means that could it be possible that this all, what I believe in all loving God, like he or she is uh, more beautiful than I could ever imagine. So this beauty that seems impossible does, is actually in our midst. And so when I was able to kind of zoom out and see these two trajectories of beauty, I was able to see, okay, I want my life to be about that eternal one that is actually building me up and building other people up versus this culturally defined path of beauty that is actually making money on shame, on our shame. Um, and it's disintegrating. I mean, like neurologically, shame divides our our brains actually, it disintegrates our brains. It disintegrates us relationally. And so anyway, that was the, the platform that I wanted to build on was Impossible Beauty to spread this idea and mostly to invite other people in on this journey of like, hey guys, FYI, like we're being totally duped by people who want to make money. And in the midst of that, like there's actually another path that we can take that actually values our humanity and the sacredness of us as as eternal beings who have so much value beyond how we align or don't align to this very small picture of beauty that actually keeps shifting. I don't know, like, so it just seems so, yeah, it's just so fickle. Yeah, hard to keep up, right? It's just when you think you figured it out, oh, it changes. Yeah, yeah, I don't know, I don't even know exactly what, what I'm shooting for anymore. So. Right, no, it's so, it's, it is so compelling to think of a, a different way that that could go. So, Melissa, aside from the, this lie that equates, you know, beauty with physical perfection, what other lies about beauty do you think need to be challenged? I think there are many, right? Tell us about a couple of your front runners. Yeah, I mean, I think one of them is just this idea of in order to be beautiful, we have to be like pleasing and put together. Whereas what I've learned is so often like, vulnerability and sometimes showing up as our full self or our true self isn't going to be put together and it's not going to be pleasing maybe to other people but I think that in order to I just think in order to live deeply um, and to live authentically I think that means expressing the full the fullness of who we are and that's not always going to be you know that involves struggle but I think with that struggle so often and with pain comes just this depth of I think it's you know Brene Brown who talks about if we don't feel the the pain, then we can't feel the depth of joy as well. And so I think that there is something to um, allowing ourselves that full range of expression and authentically embracing kind of wherever we're at so that we can live deeply versus have this pleasing facade. I think that's so, it's so important to 
to think about that, right? Because we, if, if we stop and think about the images of, of beauty we have and in other people and what we appreciate and admire and connect to in other people, it is exactly what you're saying. It's those vulnerable moments is the authenticity. It's not like, oh my gosh, I love my best friend because they have the perfect mascara, like said by nobody ever, right? Like it's really the authenticity that we connect to in each other. And that's where that, that real true beauty is. And yet that's not what gets marketed to us. I sometimes wonder if that's because our entire society is, you know, as, as, as Brene Brown would so beautifully say is, you know, vulnerability is very difficult for us and it's difficult to talk about. And so how would we possibly, uh, you know, sort of pitch that as part of our marketing slogans? And it would be a lovely world, I think, if we could think of a way to do that, to really encourage vulnerability and, and connection, true connection versus some of the other stuff that we actively <laughs> encourage. How do we actively challenge those lies? What do we do? What are the actions we can take? Yeah. I mean, I honestly think that living like fully and vulnerably, I mean, obviously choosing safe places where, where you feel safe and not uh, showing up vulnerably where, where perhaps it isn't the safest space for you. But I think being authentic about your experience and about our experiences, I think can be really helpful. And, and then you said fighting the lie too of, um, yeah, like physical perfection I think remembering that these are culturally bound and like we were just kind of joking about earlier, they're like even changing within our culture. And I mean, even if we think back, I think, you know, I know a lot of people have thought about this, but thinking about even just how the standards have changed throughout the years here in the U.S. Um, I mean, just even internationally then, I know someone was telling me about how like blacked out teeth in like one culture is beautiful, whereas, you know, that's obviously not our standard here. So just thinking about how these are so conditional Whereas I think when we think about these deeper kinds of beauty, um, like I mentioned earlier, those are more of those like unconditional, eternal types of beauty that I guess I'd rather, knowing that I have a limited lifetime, I'd rather invest myself in those, in those types of beauty that aren't fleeting. And I mean, when we just think about reality, those align with reality, um, like ultimate reality. Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's talk for a little bit about social media or sort of media literacy, looking, you know, sort of curating our media intake, because we know that that's so impactful generally. And in during the current pandemic, exposure to social media and exposure to those messages and exposure to so many, you know, the, the intensification of that exposure is significant. And so how, how do we manage that? Any thoughts about how do we really equip ourselves to manage that experience of the flood of messages? I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is just maybe putting boundaries around it. I know that it can be so tempting. I think, especially when a lot of us are, I mean, I'll speak um, personally too. I, I'm not seeing the people, um, you know, in person, like I, I long to and having things like eye contact. And I think some of the things that are so helpful with um, interpersonal interacting, but I think like putting those boundaries around social media use, and then also trying to connect with people like in real life or as close to in real life as possible. So maybe like a FaceTime call or you know, being outside, if, if possible, distancing that way. Because um, obviously, I think we're trying to feed a need that we really, we literally need as humans is to connect with other people. But obviously, I think we try to go about that, you know, via social media, which I think we all know that we, when we try to do it that way, it, uh, it doesn't ever deliver. So as much as I feel like I, I keep, my brain wants to keep inviting me back there. And not, I don't know that I ever come away feeling 
fulfilled um, interpersonally through social media. So I'd say boundaries and then being thoughtful maybe about making connections with people that you that you really do know in real life and and you know whatever that however that can be done in this season. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's particularly interesting to think about, you know, and, and maybe people are, who are listening right now are, you know, feel pretty equipped with some good media literacy skills and maybe some, you know, body acceptance perspectives, but really find that they still do hold themselves to some unrealistic appearance standards. What would you, what would you say to somebody like that? Yeah, I think kind of returning to this like zooming out perspective of like if if we play the the tape of of shame forward if i want to really believe that my worth is tied up in how closely i align with this really the way that that ends up is it is self destruction and so much that and that could look so many different ways and so i do i want to spend my my headspace and my heart space that's limited i mean in a day but also in a lifetime do i want to spend it there in like we talked about earlier too, a lot of people are literally making money off of our self-destruction in that way, which is just really angering and gross to think about. Or do we want to, again, kind of zooming out, invest that time in a, in a space where we are reminded that we are actually already beautiful and unconditionally like loved and live, I don't know, live from that space of unconditional acceptance. So sometimes zooming out can be really helpful and playing it forward. Like, if I'm buying into these beliefs, which set of beliefs are going to be more life-giving and cause me to thrive and, and live the life that I want to live? It does. It sounds so ultimately so much more peaceful to try to live in that vein than to the, the, the barrage of messaging and how that starts to make us think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Beautiful. So we love, you know, we, the, the, the work that you're doing with Impossible Beauty and and your work is a valuable resource for people. How do you as a therapist sort of see it complementing the work people might be doing in, in therapy or in other settings? Mm. Yeah, I think I remember, I remember learning in therapy school how some you know, disorders are you know, um, ego dystonic or ego syntonic and how the, the tricky part about you know, eating disorder treatment is a lot of times there is a lot of cultural or social positive feedback for, for some things that, you know, if there is some sort of body change or something along those lines. But I think when we actually, um, I think what's, what's helpful about this is, I mean, it, it, it's like a two-pronged approach for Impossible Beauty, kind of reminding us of the emptiness and the destructive nature of these cultural messages. So I think that there is that awareness piece and reminding us that actually, even though there are, we may have this immediate social positive feedback, ultimately it is a path of destruction. It's just at what point, like how, how long, however long it goes. And then the other piece that it does, is, as I think, you know, allows kind of this larger perspective to set in around direction of that we're wanting to go versus, you know, shame versus true beauty. But also I think zooming out in this way that I think Impossible Beauty invites people to do. I think, you know, we know that meaning and purpose, having higher levels of that, or when people have meaning and purpose in their life, you know, well-being thrives and so, or is higher. And so I think, again, to this point of like zooming out and thinking about how our thoughts around, I don't know, like our thoughts towards ourselves, towards beauty, I mean, all of these things, how they um, align or don't align with um, our larger sense of meaning and purpose. And I, this narrative that I'm inviting people into of true beauty is, I mean, to me, it, it really is incredibly meaningful and gives us a lot of purpose to know that we're part of this larger narrative of, of true beauty that we each have a role in. 
it sounds so much more connecting, right, than the isolation of, of the of the alternatives of sort of trying to continually buy into enough of the standard of beauty or the perceived standard of beauty to be enough, to have enough, to be loved enough, to all of those things when in fact that that marketing machine isn't interested in us being satisfied, is it? It's really interested in continuing to compel us versus what you're offering is really sounds overly simplistic, I know, but sounds sort of a core of peace of being able to connect to self in a way that's that's hard to do when the noise of everything else is so loud and is so so strong and so ever present. So it is uh, it's a really lovely thing to think about that being there for us. And, and I think that's part of why we love the work you're doing so much is that it's saying like, look, here it is. Let me invite you in to connect to it this way. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Yeah, and I think too, to your point about like connecting with ourselves too, I think what I noticed um, when I was really deep in my disorder is, I mean, the, the disorder really thrived on me not connecting with my myself. And so um, I think that as I, you know, walk the, the path of, of recovery, I think noticing how I do connect more with, my, with myself, like in terms of my body cues, but also with that comes what I would call like the voice of God and then how I listen into that. Um, I feel like I'm much more keyed in to that um, just because I started paying attention more so than I was before. It does. It, it makes me think about, as you were describing sort of that recovery path, it makes me think about how people often when the when they're sort of in the throes of the eating disorder they they have a belief about recovery like that'll never happen for me it's i'm never going to be able to do that and i and i don't know how i'll ever be able to completely never think about those things again and i think part of the work that we do both in treatment and in the journey of recovery and in unique ways to each person is realize we're all humans in this world, particularly in this culture, and that recovery doesn't mean, you know, never having a bad body image thought in your life. It means having a new way to manage your experience. How does that sit with you? Does that resonate with how you think about that aspect of recovery? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think it's much more, yeah, gradual. And I think really just being able to choose like, okay, like, is this, if I, if I keep going down this path, like almost just be more mindful and thoughtful about which, which path do I want to go down today? Or like, which, is it like, like, which wolf do I want to feed or whatever? Is that right? right. There's like some story about that. Yeah. But I think it's, it's true. Like, which, which one do I want to give more space and energy to what, what actually deserves my, my life, I guess. Absolutely. So where can people find and, and learn more about you and Impossible Beauty? Yeah, so the website is impossible-beauty.com. Um, and then you can subscribe to the, to the blog and podcast there. And basically, I'll just let you know when there are any, any new episodes or blog posts. And then on Instagram, you could follow me, which is melissa.louise.johnson or impossible-beauty. Yeah, so those are the, the main places. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for spending some time with us today. It's like this shining little nugget of remember, remember there are other ways. Remember we have alternatives in this, you know, barrage of messages. There are lots of other ways to think about it. So we really appreciate you spending time with us. Oh, thank you so much. This has been so fun. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, or leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you'd like to learn more about the EMILY program and what we do, visit emilyprogram.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at EMILY program. 
Piecemeal is produced by Angie Mitchell and Nancy Linden with music by Dan Forkey. Thanks for listening.